Hi everybody and welcome to Now and Men, the podcast about men, masculinities and gender equality. I'm Stephen Burrell and I'm here with Sandy Ruxton as always. Hi Sandy. Hi Stephen. To start off with, uh, we just wanted to apologise really, it's been a little while since our last episode. Of course some of you might be quite glad that there's been more of a gap, but anyway. um, This is actually partly for personal reasons because my dear mum died a couple of weeks ago and I've understandably been taking uh, a bit of a break since then. So. We were fortunate, my siblings and I, we count ourselves as fortunate. She was peaceful, she was comfortable at the end. She didn't get COVID, she was brilliantly looked after at home and she reached age 90. So so we have a lot to be thankful for, but I, I just wanted to say that right at the start. Thank you, Sandy, and thank you for sharing that. I'm sure all of our listeners would want to join me in uh, voicing kind of condolences really for your, for your loss. And uh, you know, I do think it is important to talk openly about these things on the podcast, um, you know, to recognise that things like work, things like running a podcast are inevitably going to be impacted by these kinds of massive, upsetting events um, in one's life. Uh, so, so thank you. Um, and moving on to today's episode, it actually coincides with the beginning of the Women's European Football Championships, Euro 2022, which are being hosted here in England. So we thought it was a really good time to have a conversation about football, which is of course a big topic when it comes to men and masculinity here in the UK and in many other countries across the world. And our guest today is Dr. Stacey Pope, who's done a lot of fascinating research in this area. Stacey's a colleague of ours at Durham University. She's an associate professor in the Department of Sport and Exercise Sciences, and her research interests are interdisciplinary, combining sociology, history, sport, gender studies and leisure studies. And she's also written a book in 2017 entitled The Feminization of Sports Fandom. Yeah, so thank you so much for joining us today, Stacey. It's great to have you on. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, of course, it is a really exciting time to be talking to you with the Women's Euros about to start here in England. Um, So I suppose to start off with, we were just wondering how you're feeling about this tournament, really. I mean, how significant do you think this moment in time is in the kind of history of of women's football here in the UK and uh, and more broadly as well? Yeah, I think that we're certainly a lot better placed um, with the timing of this tournament and hosting it in uh, in England. We've seen in the past. Uh, well, so it was 2005, the last time that we hosted a European Championships. But I don't think then it would have had anywhere near the impact that we're having, we're expecting to see now with the excitement and the buzz um, and the sellout attendances. Um, you can really feel the build-up of interest um, in the sport. So I think that timing-wise, there's not really a better platform now um, to move on for women's football. And this is on the back of what I've called this new age for media coverage of women's football and women's sport, which we argue first began actually with the 2015 FIFA Women's World Cup tournament. Um, And that was the first time that we started to see this increased interest in women's sport and women's football in particular. Excellent, excellent. But I suppose it's also hard to ignore... Um, you know, not everything about the build-up to the Women's Euros here in England has been rosy, I guess, has it? I mean, there has been, for example, quite a bit of criticism um, about the choice of stadiums, for instance. You know, several of the games are seemingly being held at quite mm. random <laughs> stadiums. You know, for example, Manchester City's training ground, which will only have a capacity of 4,700, or Lee Sports Village, which will have a capacity of 8,100. Meanwhile, there's no games happening here in the northeast of England um, or in the Midlands, which obviously both have massive footballing histories. So, I mean, yeah, does this tell us something about gender inequality and uh, the running of women's football today, would you say? 
Yeah, definitely. I think it's really frustrating in some respects that there are these missed opportunities, like you say, um, and perhaps they haven't fully appreciated the organisers, um, the FA, when setting things up, just how big an impact and what potential this tournament had for growing the game. Um, but yeah, I mean, as I say, these changes have been happening over a relatively short period of time in the grand scheme of things. Again, if we go back to the the previous European Championships, uh, uh, there wasn't we wouldn't have had the same level of interest and hype in the sport. And one of the things that we argue is that it was well, if we cast our minds back to 2011, this was a period in which we didn't have any women shortlisted on the BBC Sports Personality of the Year, generally regarded as the pinnacle of the sporting calendar year. Not not a single woman athlete um, and then 2011 as well was when we had the sky sports when uh, key members of the sky sports presentation team were removed for sexist remarks so there has been this this shift as a result of a number of interrelated developments starting perhaps with the around this time period when you first had the setup of the fa women's super league which would have been launched in 2011 and now that's gone fully professional um 2012 olympic games where you get these strong empowering uh, women role models and also sport england's this scale can campaign in from 2015 onwards now that's when we've identified this period as from 2015 as the first time that we can see actually being able to connect with interest in the game when there's a world cup tournament on so it was the first time that you that you had extensive media coverage and more importantly that the women athletes at the england representing england at the 2015 fifa women's world cup as well were reported on as serious athletes so we didn't have this same sexualization of the players trivialization um you know only talking about their roles as mothers or partners here they were reported on as serious, serious athletes. So it's impossible to follow the sport. And that's built up, you know, as we've gone into the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup. And now we've got another opportunity here with hosting the England Euros. And perhaps it just, this has just been missed in terms of like, well, you know, you need to have those big stadiums and, and you can fill them. And perhaps when the decisions were being made about this tournament, they just didn't think that there was going to be this level of interest. But if you were looking at more widely at what was going on in the game and they, how the interest has been building on previous tournaments, it really is, it really have missed the trick there, I think. Mm. Um, and, 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 you know, putting on those these games. It, at least the ones, I mean, I'm not saying that it wouldn't be, you wouldn't want to do this if the stadium was going to be empty, essentially. You don't want a, a team playing in an empty, huge stadium that only has a few thousand supporters. But you know, the, the size, as you say, in terms of the capacity of the stadiums, it, it's just not good enough, really. And I think as well, there's not really any excuse for not having any games in the northeast. Again, that is mm. for people mm. here here in the, in this region. If the what closest games are going to be, what, Sheffield area? It's mm. like a couple of hours away. And there's so many successful women athletes as well successful women footballers that have those connections with the northeast like you say so there's that to consider as well as generating the interest for young girls and mm -hmm. young boys in the sport mm -hmm. and the way to do one of the ways you can do that is obviously by host having a host a host city here just it is quite baffling so yeah there's a lot of excitement i think but there's also a lot more that uh, in terms of representing the inequalities and seeing that how those shine through there is that there underpinning this as well, I think. Mm -hmm. 
And, and following on from what you've just said there and thinking a bit more broadly about the sort of place of feminism in all this, I mean, I'm aware that um, the sports writer Suzanne Rack, she recently wrote in her new book, A Woman's Game, that uh, are quoting here, playing football is unequivocally a feminist act. Picking up a ball, heading to a patch of grass violates everything society expects of women, how they should look, how they should behave, how they should exercise, what they should wear and how they should feel. And I'm wondering if that resonates with you and, and do you see women's football in, in the same way as that? That's really interesting. I mean, the research study that I've been doing um, with Dr. Rachel Allison at University of Mississippi, so we've been looking at England fans and we've been looking at US supporters. And the, one of the things um, that shines through quite strongly is connection to gender equality and feminism. And actually, the recent paper that we published on Becoming Fans, one of the the reasons for the why people come become supporters uh, for women was gender equality and wanting to advance the sport for women and this recognition that in the case of football especially the the persistent gender inequalities were kind of linked to their part of their rationale for actually being a supporter and wanting to engage with women's sport over men's sport so i think that's that's a really important point um and I guess on a personal level, yes, yeah, certainly that's something that I would identify with. I think it's probably, uh, we can come on to talk about this shortly, but in terms of the research that I've done around men's attitudes towards women's football, the reason why we see so much hostility is because certainly in the UK, this sport is regarded as a male preserve. It's a men's domain. It's that last bastion of masculinity, the, supposedly the last space that men can still prove that they are real men however you want to define that and so it's like we've seen women enter in all of these other spaces but it's like when women go into football suddenly that it's that idea of breaking down that last 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 male preserve and i think that that is one of the one of the ways to explain the findings that we had around um, men's attitudes towards women's football and, and why they were um, we saw such levels of overt sexism and misogyny hmm. I mean, I, I think we'll probably come back to some of the issues you just mentioned there about um, fandom. But uh, before we do, um, and I thought it might be worth just mentioning the fact that there have been several cases in recent years of high-profile men in football being accused of domestic and sexual violence. And I'm, I'm wondering how seriously the football world and football clubs take violence against women, in your view, and what, what else needs to be done that isn't being done so far? Yeah, I think that um, what we see is... Uh, essentially, the clubs are designed to or set up uh, to protect men's interests. It's kind of on the back of this idea that of football being a, a male preserve. Um, and therefore, when these incidents happen, and they do happen, um, and there's evidence for it, uh, but it means essentially that the player or the coach or whoever it is, the clubs rarely feel the need to take any action. And if they do, um, in the rare case that the, that official or that player faces consequences for that misogynistic um, behaviour, then once the scandal starts to die down a little bit, I can be, just be talking a few weeks later, they then are able to go and find lucrative employment elsewhere. It's not even like there's, it's not even like there's a black mark against their name or anything like that. And it strikes me that just far too many football clubs are willing to ignore these kinds of issues. Um, I think the consensus is generally speaking that if that player or that manager or that director, whoever it might be, if they're making money for the club, they're helping to bring in the trophies, then the rest of this is kind of irrelevant. And there's not really any consideration for 
the impact that that could have or or even thought about the, the role of football in the community for the supporter base for these players as well they are role models whether they like it or not they are role models the impact is going to have on women supporters following the club mm. the impact on the women involved in these you know horrendous kinds of cases that doesn't seem to come into the equation and it's kind of like making the money um so it's not really something that is particularly taken seriously and i think there has to be something done that's not going to come um from the clubs there's going to have to be something um from the top down to to resolve these issues because they are kind of their own uh models that are running themselves and so without something coming down to prevent this from happening we won't see any changes there sadly mm-hmm. and perhaps the most um high profile case was that with Wraith Rovers recently in mm. Scotland wasn't it where there was a guy playing for the government who was hired who'd been found um by a civil court to have raped a woman in 2017 and yeah. then the club defended the move. They said, well, he's got a proven record as a goal scorer. Well, well so what? You know, yeah, <laughs> so it is yeah. precisely as you're, as you're saying. Exactly, but, um, yeah. That's exactly the words that the manager used, proven record as a goal scorer. You know, it's almost like the rest of that um, is irrelevant. Yeah. And they were forced into a situation. It was, only, it was only when the sponsors started to pull out and the negative publicity around the first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, condemning the move, mm. as well as the high profile women at the involved in the club who were against that signing, it, this kind of like negative publicity, and suddenly that could have an impact on the finances if sponsors yeah. start to pull out that then they announced after all that they weren't going to sign him. But and you see that time and time again, you see it with um, other with, whether it be coaches, um, I think there was the case of the the Ajax director of football, Mark Overmars, um, he resigned from his role. A Dutch club after there was a series of inappropriate messages that were sent out to female colleagues um, over an extended period of time. And then it was only when the Ajax board had received multiple official complaints that then they were made aware of these sexting allegations um, against him. And then a little over a month later, he gets a job. He moves on to be a new technical director um, at at Royal Antwerp. So it's kind of like just Mm. moves on. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Let's go back to the issues of um, fandom, which you mentioned earlier, and men's attitudes in that respect. I mean, I think you've carried out a survey with male fans about their attitudes, and that yielded some pretty fascinating, but also quite depressing findings, and suggesting that sexist attitudes remain pretty rife. So do you want to say a little bit more about that work and the the kinds of things that, that came out of it? Yeah, it was an online survey. Uh, we looked at just under 2,000 men football fans from all across the UK, from across the Football League and, and some non-league clubs as well. We, we recruited through 150 um, UK fan message boards and kind of set in this context of the increased visibility of women's sport and women's football. I wanted to see how men football fans uh, were, re- were reacting to this this new age so it's the first study to focus on uh, men football fans attitudes towards women's sport in this new age um, in, in the UK to a point that now you can't ignore it if you think back to when there wasn't any media coverage if you're a football fan of men's football you wouldn't necessarily know what was going on even if there was a world cup or a European championships you know it was so marginalized that wouldn't have been there but now that's no longer the case and we are it's not equitable but we are seeing increased uh, visibility 
And essentially, um, the findings showed that men were, there were three different groups that respondents could be split into. Uh, there were those men uh, who showed progressive attitudes and they would be supportive of, of women's football and the increased media profile of the sport. However, the most dominant group in the sample were those men who, had, who showed overtly misogynistic attitudes or in, in sociological terms, they, they were performing um, overt misogynistic masculinities. And then we had a group that sort of straddled the middle ground in between and they would express gender progressive attitudes in some public spaces but in private or other situations other social situations revealed more misogynistic viewpoints so there were some encouraging things to be taken in the respect that you know i think it was about we had about a quarter of the sample that fell in the progressive group they showed strong support for equality in media coverage of women's sport and more positive um, attitudes towards women's football. And they would be arguing for greater media coverage of the sport. And perhaps one really critical point is that some of the men in this group um, spoke about how in the past they did have sexist attitudes and in the past um, they did express uh, misogynistic viewpoints around women's football. However, this attitude has changed. And the main uh, factor that helped to shift some men from misogynistic to progressive masculinities or to, to showing progressive attitudes was the media exposure to women's football. So it was definitely the case that, uh, well, to quote one of the respondents, um, it changed my view of the sport. I used to see it as a joke, but having watched the Women's World Cup, I now feel the opposite. So there's a real potential there you know, they had these really negative perceptions of women's football, having never seen it. And then when they were, had that exposure and it was there on the, on the TV or wherever they watched it, um, this led to a change in men's attitudes. And, you know, it has the potential, therefore, to lead to a subsequent um, rise in the popularity of women's sport, as well as changing men's attitudes towards the sport. So I think uh, based on that, one of the key things I would argue is that we need to see more gender equitable coverage of women's sport. This is a critical thing that can help to drive gender equality and promote social justice. Uh, and some of these men also spoke about how it also play, could play a role in building um, the numbers of players for, for girls and women, opportunities to play the sport as well. Grassroots participation was seen to be dependent on this. So there were some positives. However, as you said, the, the most dominant group was the men showing misogynistic attitudes. And perhaps most depressingly for me, this was shown to be the case regardless of age. So if we perhaps draw on some of the previous work in relation to um, existing research, we, we, or we, might, we might just expect really that this would be something that would be expected of older generations and to see a shift for the younger men in the sample. But that was not the case at all. And sadly, there were numerous examples of sexist remarks from the younger generation. So there wasn't any obvious generational differences in this respect. And these men would show hostile attitudes towards women's football and a backlash against increased media coverage of, of women's sports. So in the, in the light of the, these recent changes that we've been seeing, um, the, these men expressed a, a backlash towards that. And there were attitudes there that that women should not participate in in any sport or or if they did it should certainly not be football 
uh, again, given the, the, the associations between football and masculinity. So, so for some in this group, they were happy for women to play sport as long as it wasn't male sports, as long as it was um, those sports associated with more, as you can say, traditional femininity. So, so there was a steer away from those sports seemed to be associated with masculinity. And men in this group variously described women's football as not as dynamic, not as quick, not as skillful, slower. Women were less competitive. Um, and so there were always links back to essentialist reasoning um, or the biological essentialism, essentially, this idea that any differences between men and women were simply seen as natural. And then it maintained assumptions of men's superiority. And we saw within this group real hostility as well to the increased media coverage, this idea of positive discrimination um, or PC nonsense. So the idea that the reason that the sport was being televised or there was any media coverage was seen to be part of a kind of progressive or led by the government, led by progressive elements of society. Basically, there wasn't seen to be any genuine demand for it at all from the, quote, real supporters. Um, I suppose the, the, for me, one of the interesting things as well, although it was a smaller number of, of men in the study, um, but I think it's important to acknowledge nonetheless that the men that performed and the men that showed covertly misogynistic attitudes. Because for me, um, these men are showing how they can skillfully manoeuvre between progressive and misogynistic um, attitudes. So... I guess there's an acknowledgement here that it's no longer appropriate to say out loud um, some of these opinions that they might have. Um, So they would appear to be on message and they appeared to be behind gender equality agendas, but they saw women's sport as inferior to that of men's sport. So in certain in public arenas would would state that they are in favour of gender equality. They would make sure that they say the right things. But then in other social contexts, um, perhaps in safe spaces, we might say, pub, football stadium, even um, male dominated workspaces, perhaps that's when they would say what they really thought. And that's when they would say, uh, you know, when when they're in spaces with other men who they expected to share similar ideologies and, and, and viewpoints. And so these were these would perhaps attempt to justify uh, some of these viewpoints. But. I think just the idea of uh, the performance of this and recognition that it's no longer no longer appropriate to say these things, but this is still what what we think. And so that was an interesting finding, I think, as well. Hmm. Really interesting. I mean, I suppose it's very depressing, really, isn't it? Just, just that it shows that these views are so widespread and, and also that a lot of men are quite happy to express them in an anonymous survey, you know, so it's not just a case of performing these mm-hmm. kinds of misogynistic behaviours in front of their friends, but even in an anonymous survey as well. But but I think it's important to hold on to the fact as well that a not insignificant number of the men in your survey did express these these more progressive attitudes. And I was just wondering, um, do you think there are some shifts going on there in terms of masculinity in football? You know, if I think about... I suppose if we think about the, the top level of footballers, you know, like the England men's team, Gareth Southgate, the current manager, you know, they do seem to embody a, a different way of being a man, to me at least, it seems. You know, think about someone like Marcus Rashford, who's spoken out powerfully about poverty, inequality, 
things like children reading, all of these kinds of things. Um, you know, they seem to be kind of putting into practice more caring ways of being a man in at least some ways. Um, so, yeah, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Do you think there are, we are seeing some changes going on, either, you know, whether that's among players or fans um, in terms of masculinity? Yeah, definitely. I think they're all really good examples, what you've just said there in, in relation to that Um and yeah, I tried to take some heart from the fact that you know we did we did see around a quarter of the of the men in in that category showing progressive viewpoints. But I think perhaps um, there was still some level, well, maybe not surprise in some respects. But it was the demotivating part of it was the fact that it was the vast majority or such a substantial majority of men in the study that were showing overtly misogynistic attitudes. And I suppose, unfortunately, that you could probably see examples of that shining through if you just turn to social media. So when you do have these really progressive mm. campaigns and good role models and all doing a fantastic job, but then you can't almost have then that dark side of what's going on in that space as well. And although the study didn't look specifically at that, I think you can see it in action. And it, it isn't just sexism, is it? In that respect, it's sexism, it's racism, it, it's homophobia. We see all these things come out, but... And I think as well with, with the ones doing this covertly, in some respects, that's even more difficult to challenge because it's almost like, well, say the right thing in the right mm. r moment, but then what? The woman walks mm. out of the room in the workplace or, or whatever it is, and then that's the opportunity to say what, what you really think. And so, well, the ways in which we can challenge that become even more difficult, I think, um, in that respect. Mm. Yeah, which I suppose just shows how important it is that players do speak out more about these issues, isn't it? As some of the England players have been about some of the issues you mentioned, at least um, recently. Um, something I was wondering as well, because obviously a lot of these issues are issues across society, or even though perhaps in some cases they are, you know, exaggerated in, in the football context. Um, do you think that there is sometimes also an issue around kind of class-based stereotyping or prejudices about football fans um, and about like kind of working class masculinities uh, I suppose you know I'm just thinking about the recent men's Champions League final where we saw you know Liverpool fans being treated really badly by the organizers of the match and the police the French police because it was held in Paris you know sometimes there seems to be this assumption that you know, football fans, because it is quite a working class sport, are, are inherently aggressive and violent and backwards in some way. Um, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that, I suppose. Yeah, and that what we saw in the Champions League uh, was just horrific. Um, and I guess, yeah, traditionally, the sport has been a working class sport historically. Um, but that shifted. It's no longer well, in the in the UK context, is the national sport, isn't it? And that doesn't, by no means, is not just including working class supporters. But I think you're right in the respect that some of those stereotypes do carry over. One of the things that I've tried to emphasise um, in this study is that when we talk about football fans, this is, they, they are not just this separate group to society. You know, these were these were yeah, they were, mm -hmm. we we ran them. This is an online survey, but there was. There was no requirement. You, you, some of the men in the study would have gone to matches. Some would have engaged through through social media, through through um, watching matches on TV, through online streaming. And so there's a whole you know discussion that you can have around how, how you want to define a fan. But for me, football fans are part of society. So when we're talking about these issues, we're not just there's no point in lumping it over as well. This this is sexism, and this is football fans, and this is their you know this is them. This is not me. It's kind of like well. 
no, not everyone is a football supporter, but a lot of people are in, in the UK and perhaps even more so when you're looking at men. So therefore, the, this is representative of, of men's attitudes, really, in that respect. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I, I agree with your point that there are those stereotypes that are attached and perhaps completely outdated now, um, but uh, still always seem to, to flare up whenever you have these, um, whenever you have these incidents. Mm. I wanted to ask you about the experience of female fans who you mentioned earlier. I mean, you know, their experience has often been a bit hidden. They've been ignored, but they make up quite a big part of football support. And I think you've, you've done some research on them, looking at the experiences of female football fans in the UK from the 1950s to uh, the present day, perhaps based around um, uh, Newcastle United. Is that right? Um, yeah, yeah. What kinds of things have you been finding in, in about who they are and what sticks in your mind from what they've been telling you? Yeah, I think with the looking at so looking at women as fans of men's football, I mean it's just riddled with those kinds of stereotypes around women not being regarded as as real fans or authentic fans, and the the stereotypes that run alongside you know women not understanding the laws of the sport. They're only there supposedly because they're attracted to the players. Of due to a heterosexual interest in the players and all of these barriers that women have to negotiate to even get have a presence at, at a football stadium um so yeah that's been kind of an area that i've looked at in ongoing research really um one of the things that came out of my um, earlier work in in this area was to look at the range or the multiplicity of of femininities um in, in play and the range of women supporter types so the study showed that um, in relation to football fans, 85% of women in my in my study could best be defined as a as a hot supporter, and these were women for whom the club essentially played a central life interest for them. Um, it was in in some cases it was it was the most important thing in their life, uh, um, and so uh, but to look at that and then to look at the range of, of supporter types. Um, and then you also had, you did have some women in the sample, a, a smaller component in that research, um, who could, who were defined as cool fans. And for them, football was, you know, almost like um, it wasn't a central life interest. It was a hobby or form of entertainment, uh, as you would expect to find, I'm sure, for some men. But um, I think there are those, it's kind of against the backdrop of a male-dominated society in some respects, because you just have these hierarchies and it's always assumed that for men, it's the most important thing in their lives. Whereas for women, it's assumed that it's not important. They're not real fans. They're only there for due to inauthentic reasons. So that kind of then led me, looking at that research, led me to a new Arts and Humanities Research Council project that I've been working on. Uh, because I found from doing this that due to these assumptions, I think that women have essentially been written out of history. And so there isn't really any research looking at social history and women's experiences in earlier decades. And so what I've done is with the with the Newcastle project is I've been speaking to women of different generations, but some of whom first started going to matches in the 1950s, which was a, as far back as, we, as I could go with with oral history interviews. And um, I've done that and then map, looking at mapping over the generations so going from the 1950s through to the present day. And I find that really powerful in terms of being able to then look at, well, change and continuities in, in women's experiences and uh, change and continuities in, in gender inequality as, as, as well. What's changed, what's stayed the same. And so with the 1950s project that you just mentioned, 
just launched a new website a few weeks ago, uh, womenfootballfans.org, where we are now are showcasing this uh, material in a, in a publicly accessible format in the hope that this can help to challenge some of the some of those assumptions you know women first of all that women weren't there well they are there here are some of their memories of going to newcastle united in the 1950s when newcastle was winning the fa cup three times and how they found that experience of being a supporter at that time what it was like going to a stadium where there weren't really facilities for women so that's something that i've been quite quite passionate about as well Mm. Because talking about the present, I mean, I think that I mean there are experiences of sexism for female fans today, aren't there? Really, I mean, there was a survey by the Football Supporters Association last year. They found that one in five women had experienced unwanted physical attention while attending men's games. So you know, there is that side of it too, still yeah. today, and that's important. But at the same time, women are. Uh, also, you know, hopefully experiencing some of the joy of football as well, despite some of the problems that the game is beset with, you know, all, all the sort of increasing ticket prices, the the male-dominated wealthy ownership, you know, the corruption and so on and so forth. So there's a, a mixed bag that they're experiencing, isn't there? Yeah, and I think it just, it kind of goes to show, it shows me, I think, in some respects, just how committed women are as supporters that they still will go to the stadium in spite of having to put up with all of this in their experiences. So whether it be, as I alluded to earlier, with the shocking match day facilities um, back in earlier historical periods, which to some extent is still not, uh, we're not there by any means, even when new stadiums are, are being built in terms of basic provision for women. And one of the things I'm working on at the minute is developing some, um, I guess, some policy recommendations to be able to offer clubs some recommendations for tackling sexism uh, and misogyny at football clubs. And this focus, I'm talking about men's football here because I think it's very different when we look at the women's football context um, in terms of what, you know, the the environment being a lot more inclusive before we even speak about anything else. But yeah, so some, some recommendations for how we can create a more welcoming space for women at the stadium. Uh, and it is, it is difficult as well, because like, I know that certainly it's come through in my research that when you do speak to women about what could we do, how could we make improvements, what could we do for the better, you have to remember that women are doing their fandom or performing their fandom, that they are supporters in this male dominated space and they've had to go to great lengths to be considered an authentic fan in that male dominated space. And the moment you start talking about gender issues, women don't want to be called women fans. Women don't see themselves as women fans. They see mm. themselves as football fans. So when you start to say like, gosh, this is shocking, isn't it? Like n- hardly any toilets. And you've said to me how bad, you know, what state that the ones that exist are in. Often it's the, it's the case that, not always, but often it's the case that there will almost be some sort of defence of this. And then it will be like, well, would you rather the money go into nice swanky toilets or would you rather the money go into the club and buying a new player for next season? So the fandom, because the fandom's there and, and, and driving that, it, I think it's very difficult to sort of challenge some of this. And the moment that if they were to start talking about, you know, how could we change things? How could we change the setup as you go into the stadium? Um, what could we do to improve things? They are immediately drawing attention to their fact that they are a woman 
the guys that they go to the match with or that all stand around them. I mean, yeah, all right. So statistics will show that we've got, we're nearly up to what about 25% of the football fans made up of women, but it's still a male dominated space. So it becomes very difficult then to start to challenge that and offer some, some critique of this because they, they know that, well, they know that A, it could undermine their authenticity as a supporter, that they've taken a long time to build up and be recognised as a real fan. And also it, it can lead to backlash, you know, because men may not want to see some of these changes that what, what are being proposed. So because it's it's kind of like this idea of a male dominated space and you're, mm. you're in it, but you're you're not fully in it. So but it's certainly something that I'm trying to take the, the empirical research, the theoretical developments and come up with some practical practical recommendations for what what we should be doing to create a welcoming space that I'll have ready soon to be launched for all football clubs, you know, yeah. because they, they have a responsibility to, to be doing this, doing this work. Yeah. It feels like as, as a woman who's interested in football, you, you kind of have to become incorporated into that male world. You know, it's very, very difficult to not be really, but I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering from what you've said, how these female fans became interested in the first place, you know, given that it's, it's such a male-dominated world. I mean, maybe maybe they had progressive male parents at home who encouraged them. Maybe they were able to play at school. I don't know. But it's kind of interesting how they got to the place that they're in now. Yeah, I, I think it's for, certainly for fans of men's football, um, male gatekeepers do play a really key role. So it's often mm. the case in the studies that I've done um, in the past and in the current work I'm looking at um, on the IAHRC project, it's it's often the case that men act as gatekeepers. So it might be, as you say, a father, um, a male sibling, male friends. There has to be the, that somebody to, it almost in quote marks, take them, allow them to attend a, a match at the stadium. Mm. And um, when they go, however that situation plays out or whether it's just a complete coincidence that there was one week um, a, a male sibling was meant to attend and he was ill or something. So they used the ticket, whatever, it, however they get into that space, it's then when they get their attend and then get the hook and I guess bitten mm. by it by having that experience. But it needs that, well, it has typically needed to have that male um, gatekeeper to allow them into that space. And, and one of the areas that I speak about on, on the website is um, the idea that women women did not t attend alone because a lot of the women that I spoke to in, in the earlier historical work and today, to be fair as well, but certainly in these earlier historical years, it's kind of like women just could not go to matches on their own. And they have to try and find like creative ways to be able to get into the stadium. So whether it's be like then, um, you know, alternating finding a male friend at school to be able to attend matches with because it wasn't something that they, they would be able to do on their own. Certainly in relation to physical education, I think that's an interesting one because a, most of the women, although they are highly, highly committed football fans, and as I say, in some cases, it's the most important thing to them, they became interested in spite of and not because of their experiences at PE. And the reason for that being that PE was still very gender segregated. So they would find opportunities in some cases to play outside of school. They would join in. They might be the only girl and they would perhaps use a, a attach a um, tomboy identity to use the words of respondents. Um, 
to being able to then access these more adventurous spaces, being able to play football and, and do other activities with other males at that, or other young boys at that time, even if they were the only female in, in the group doing that. But when they were at school, um, everything was very gender segregated. And there was this real sense that, you know, a sport like football is, is not appropriate for girls and the, bo the boys play these sports, girls play these sports and, and there's no crossover. So I find that quite frustrating in a way because it's something that again looking at the intergenerational component it runs across all the generations so I can be speaking to somebody in the 50s 60s 70s and that we went to school at that point in time and are giving similar examples to girls in more recent years you know or more recent interviewees um, or women who are parents of daughters and their experiences at, at school and there still is something going on in terms of not all girls by any means have opportunities to access um access playing the sport through school and there are still those sort of uh, assumptions there about what some a uh, gender appropriate uh, sport to play so yeah i think that that would be so kind of be out away from the curriculum rather than embedded within that as you would you probably expect you know these are really as i say committed passionate football people the main main part of their life and yet frustrated because they didn't get those opportunities when they were younger to play the sport it is changing it's probably not changing fast enough I mean but it is changing that's really interesting and and myself I'm an Aston Villa fan and my own experience is kind of the opposite to some of the fans you were describing because it was my my mum who was my kind of gatekeeper because my, my dad isn't interested in football that much uh by comparison and so I think she was going to games you know in the 70s and 80s and so yeah it's through her that I've I became an Aston, Aston Villa fan but also I can relate to some of the things you were saying about things like toilets because I'm sure I remember you know we'd go to a game and like at half time we'd both go to the loo and I wouldn't see her for ages because she'd be having to go halfway down the stand you know to find the one female toilet in that stand kind of thing but but I suppose yeah thinking about your own kind of personal um position in all of this I suppose we were just interested you know where did your own interest in football begin um, and what led you to want to kind of do this this research on it I think from that perspective so I, I've always been well for a long time been interested in the sport uh, my initial connection was through the 1990 World Cup men's World Cup um, when there would have been a lot of exposure um, a lot of hype at that time. I think that was probably my first memories of of the sport. And then, probably even back then, I can remember asking my asking my dad, like, why are there no women players on the pitch? Like, so starting to think in in, in that perspective, the gender dynamics were there. But uh, I'm a Leicester City supporter, so uh, my earlier memories were going to to matches at Filbert Street, as it would have been then. And I was fortunate in some respects to have a uh, PE teacher who, who didn't make that kind of like gender split and wanted to give the girls team the same opportunities as the boys team. So there was none of this sort of either you're not allowed to play or if you do play, there was clear emphasis on the boys team and you know the girls team not really getting any support or anything like that. So I think it, it, I, I think that that's how my initial connection came. And then it was through studying so I, was, I did my undergraduate degree in, in sociology um, and then went to do a master's in social research. And it was partly through that that I came to find out that you could actually study sport and study sociology as part of an academic discipline. Um, and then 
well there was no looking back really for me in terms of like what areas to to prioritize to, to study and then i guess the more the more you you more you work on it the more you um speak to people you you find out more about the uh the challenges as well but no I, I and i take your point stephen you're right there are um there are women who are gatekeepers as well now um and there would have been from in my research and the women that i've interviewed some of them would have been te uh, allowing um kids to accompany them to matches although there weren't many in the study that were taking children which was interesting because a lot of the marketing assumes that we should it's is women women go to matches to to take the children basically and it's marketed in that way but the vast majority of the women i interviewed um didn't didn't go to games w with children but i think it's definitely there and it's there in the men's game it's even more there in, in the women's mm. game so in the in the research that we've been doing on, on women's football women were actually working as gatekeepers to um for initiate interest in the sport so it was almost like flip the other way around and it was often women who initiated that first um, interest in the sport. What would you, I suppose, most like to see change, you know, in, in terms of football to, to improve the situation when it comes to, to gender equality? Are there, is there anything in particular you think would be really, you know, doable and, and valuable um, in that regard? And I suppose, are there any countries which you think are doing, you know, particularly good things um, in this area that, that come to mind? Mm. I think we can learn a lot from the US but that said, I'm also con acutely conscious that the sport is so different in the US in the respect that it doesn't hold that same, the bastion of masculinity, male preserve. It's, I mean, it's, it's great to be able to throw it back to people and say, this is actually in the US context, this is the sport that women play, you know? Like, so it just goes to show how these things are so, so socially constructed. But yeah, there's definitely um, we, we can look to look to international examples. And um, there's, there's obviously if you look to Scandinavia um, it, for women's football, th things are generally in, in the setup there and have been for longer as well. You know, it feels like in the in the UK context, we're still battling against a long history of a lack of recognition, really. Uh, and I know that the 1921 FA ban on women's playing the sport or women having access to the stadiums to be able to play the sport and there's no doubt that we've taken a big hit in the respect that it's only been very recently that in the grand scheme of things that we've started to put emphasis on the sport so we are up against that um historical inequalities and i think that's really interesting when people start to compare the sports because you just can't do that because the women's game hasn't had the same opportunities to grow as, as the men's game in, in that respect. Um, yeah, I think, and I think it's, I think it would be a case of when we're trying to change the culture, it's almost like it's going to have to be small steps. Um, nothing is going to change overnight, really. And as much as I would like it to, but trying to find ways to, trying to find ways to make, make change happen i think is the most difficult thing because if we go back to men's football if you think about it they're going to fill those stadiums up they don't need to make any effort to recruit supporters so there's no apart from saying it's the right thing to do there's no they're financially driven you know the businesses and if, if they've got a model and it's working then then why change it so it's not going to be until for example the recent um fan-led review that well, one of the recommendations from that was that equality, diversity and inclusion was a strategic recommendation. You know, we need to go further than that if we're going to see if we're going to see changes. And it, we need to I don't think anything is going to change. And 
on, on a grander scale unless it really is like you need to do this or you know you, you get you won't have these points there's something like that where there's clear penalties for those that don't engage with this but because otherwise it's as i say what there's just not not the incentive and it's doors will be slammed and the, it's not a priority the priorities are winning and trophies <laughs> so. yeah yeah yeah, so one thing Sandy and I were talking about before we started recording, actually, um, it's difficult, isn't it? Because clearly the, the amount of money invested in women's football is is tiny compared to the amount of money invested in men's football. But then also one of the big problems with men's football is the money, right? It, there are all these problems in terms of corruption and massive inequality just within the men's game and because of all this money going to the top of the game. So do you have any thoughts about that? Like, how can we build women's football without you know re just replicating all of the problems which exist in the men's game <laughs> and that's a real challenge because even when we're looking at the fan base of the women's game and it's kind of like that people are almost torn because on the one hand they really like the fact that it's uh, the players are more accessible more approachable um you can it's in terms of the numbers of supporters at the matches it's much safer there's not the the um stadium it's a bit little bit in the in the respect of lack of segregation you know that's no different to what men's football used to be like people sometimes forget that but my interviewees in the 1950s at newcastle united you didn't have crowd segregation that was something that was brought in later on you know, so you'd be stood there chatting with somebody who supported the opposition team. So that's not when people say, well, that's not like real football. It's kind of like, well, it was real football until, <laughs> until the segregation was brought in. Um, but yeah, so the, there's all of those things that people find like attractive and appealing, but then also simultaneously want to grow the game. And obviously then when you start to talk about higher attendances, um, it's not no longer going to be viable for woman football player to be liking or replying to tweets in the same way that you can't expect Marcus Rashford to send you a personal reply to all of your to all of your comments and whatever. So it's like you start to build it and then they start to move towards that model. Um, and then do you lose some of what some people were initially attracted to the sport for? Um, and I think we're probably at the minute we're on that sort of critical yeah juncture in some ways which which way we're going to go but you're right we don't necessarily want to directly replicate the men's model because that's not necessarily the best and we're seeing that now we're mm. seeing that with the the what, what we've seen in terms of the the proposed super league and mm. uh, european mm. super league and all of the problems when it's kind of like greed greed capitalism mm. and and that driving this and no consideration yeah. whatsoever for supporters so no it's not exactly like it's the ideal model but it's a model in which i mean i don't think any women are not even necessarily saying making a case that they should be paid the same as a male player but it's kind of like well if you can't make a living from this and you're going to retire and you're not going to have enough money to to see you through and, and these kinds of things and so therefore where do you put your priorities that's the level of gender inequality as a starting point that needs to be challenged before you even start saying like, well, what's a fair salary? Well, you know, a, a fair salary needs to be something that makes it so that for, for women footballers that they're able to to live on and ideally have a, you know, a, a, a be paid well for what they're for what they're doing. So I think, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot to a lot to unpack there. And then you've got the total opposite extreme, haven't you? Then you've got people talking about, well, should X player be being paid 250 grand a week or whatever it is that you're talking about. Um, mm. So, yeah.
And, then, and you know, we're talking here about basic being able to afford to play the game because it's this again, it's not even like it's all the players, but um, mm. if you've not got that salary there, or they're having mm. to balance multiple jobs, you're not fully investing in your in, in your career in, in that respect. Mm. And that, therefore that's going to have a knock on effect on, on the quality that can be developed. Um, basic maternity provision, even for women players, mm. you know, it, that's another thing that can't get called up to then this is all very recently but can't get called up for an international game because i can't afford the i can't afford the childcare costs when i when i go out mm. to play and these kinds of examples if you look to the previous world cup it's like mm. it's not that long ago when we're when we're when we're looking at this and you think mm. can you imagine something like that happening in the men's game mm. he can't play because he can't <laughs> afford to yeah. pay for a, a child to go out or to have to somebody babysit while while away mm. on international duty it's just it's just phenomenal so it feels like there's a real real gap between the two um and yeah. so yeah needing to find ways to chisel that and to enable yeah. the sport to progress i mean given all the difficulties and obstacles obstacles you've just mentioned i hesitate to ask but but you know what what is it that individual men can do to support women into football and women's position in football and promote gender equality in the sport more generally. Are, are there certain things that you would like men who might listen to this podcast to do? Uh, yeah, well, I think uh, as going back to the study, the, the fact that some men performing their progressive masculinities or showing progressive attitudes were advocating for greater equality in women's football. They describe themselves as fans of the women's game and fans of, of the men's game, you know, um, and were making a case that you needed to have, um, that there needed to be more forceful mechanisms brought in to, to facilitate the growth of the game. So, for example, making sure that media coverage was there and making sure that it was respectful media coverage as well. It's important to emphasise that, I think, because it's, Again, a lot of feminist literature shows how when you do cover up women's sport, it's done in a, can be done in a very sexist, it's, and it's kind of like we're going from that overt sexism to now what some scholars have called uh, uh, gender bland sexism. So it's become, it's not quite as in your face as it, as it would have been in earlier years. But we need to make sure that that coverage is respectful and it's done and, and the players are reported and it isn't in that way that it has been done in the past where they are sexualized and the sport is undermined by that coverage because that doesn't really change anything i don't think because we need to have the greater equality in media exposure and make sure that runs hand in hand with respectful coverage so i think advocating for these things some men in the study um spoke about how you could have the equivalent to what what's in the us in terms of making making certainly at college level making sure that the the money that goes into boys and girls sport is equitable and, you know, so making a case um, and understanding of, of these issues and, and putting the case forward for for gender equality. It's not it's not just a women's problem, I don't think. It's kind of like you need to, we need to, we're seeing evidence of some men having, showing these these perceptions. And I think um, more of that will, will only be positive uh, for the sport. And I guess as well, standing up when these, when these attitudes are expressed. So if there is a case of the of that group I described that would say what the right thing when when they're in certain contexts and then in another context, another social situation, perhaps all men, that's when they say what they really think. It's kind of like, well, these attitudes need to be challenged as well. And I know that that's really hard to do, but 
calling this out, I guess, that um, in terms of when sexism and misogyny does does come out. Okay, well, I think we're just about out of time, Stacey. But perhaps uh, just one last question. Uh, who do you think is going to win the Euros? Uh, I mean, do you think that uh, either the home teams in terms of England or Northern Ireland, how do you think our chances are looking? <laughs> it's going to be about the most biased answer ever, isn't it? <laughs> Say England. <laughs> well, we are hosting well, it. That's got to help, hasn't it? Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm good for that. <laughs> There's always hope. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. But, no, I see it. I would love to see the England team doing well because I think more. I feel like there's more pressure riding on the England women's team more than mm. more more than the men's. And so, well, yeah, the the men's the, it's the expectation and all the baggage that goes with men performing at the World Cup and what the, that history and the penalties and all the rest of it. But I feel like for yeah. the women's game, there's the the added pressure is if they is if they don't perform all of what we've spoken about today mm. in terms of the opportunities for girls and women to grow the sport at grassroots level, pushing on the sport, uh, making a claim for salary and pay and all these kinds of gender equality issues, it will all just drop off a cliff edge of the media exposure of the sport. There's, unfortunately, it's kind of like that. It's hand in hand with, um, with, with the national um, team being doing well, I think. Uh, if the mm. men's team drop out, the interest in the World Cup or the European Championships, I think, mm. is still there and people turn to other countries. Mm. I'm not so sure we're quite there with the women's game yet. And I suspect that journalists would then stop writing or not be writing as much about the tournament. And then, therefore, it's it's uh, it's more difficult. So from a personal perspective, but also from a, from a research perspective, mm. I think I'd like to see the England team do well just because, yeah, I think it's... Uh, I think there's a lot riding riding on that, and that's not necessarily right, but I think it's no, it's no. the sad reality of the situation. Mm. Oh, we'll be crossing our fingers then. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> but thank you so much, Stacey, for for talking to us. It was so interesting, and uh, yeah, just thank you for giving up your time. Thank yeah, you thanks very much. for me too. It's great. Well, I certainly learned a hell of a lot there. I mean, you know, my knowledge of football is really uh, from the 1960s and 70s, and you know. Uh, the Jules Rimet trophy being found by Pickles the dog in a hedge in 1966. So, you know, I'm, I'm slightly um, <laughs> out of time on this. But anyway, what, what did you think? <laughs> yeah, thank you, Sandy. I, I know I thought it was such a fascinating conversation with Stacey. I mean, I am a bit of a football fan, so it is an issue which is quite close to my heart. And actually, one thing I think which we didn't have time to discuss, you know, I do think football and other sports, there's a lot of space and capacity there for, you know, for engaging with men and boys, actually, and engaging with all people around gender equality issues, you know, about preventing, you know, violence against women. Actually, given how many boys, young men are involved in football and other sports, I think there's a lot of opportunities there to be talking to them about these issues. I mean, here in the UK, I know the White Ribbon campaign has done a bit of that, um, for example. So I think there's a lot more that, that could be done there in terms of, um, yeah, doing that kind of work and awareness raising, education. And of course, there's, uh, I think there's a lot of scope for more male players to be speaking out about these issues as well. I mean, I mentioned the England men's team, Gareth Southgate. They have spoken about things like racism, not so much about gender equality so far, but perhaps that will change in the future. Um, what, what did you think? Yeah, well, it's interesting you, you say that. I mean, given that Wimbledon's on, you know, the tennis, I, I, I was thinking about a player like Andy Murray, speaking out about specifically gender equality you know when he when he was asked you know uh, you're the only player who's won two gold medals at the olympics in tennis and he said you know the only male player 
And he said, Williams sisters have won about four each. So, you know, just in a very sort of uh, simple and neat way, he challenged his interviewer about the sort of sexist uh, assumption. And, and really, you don't find that so much in the football world, I don't think. I can't think of any examples. There may be some, of course. Um, but actually, the figures that you think about in terms of football are perhaps some of the female players. You know, people like Megan Rapinoe in the US, who, you know, an out lesbian player. And maybe that goes back to, you know, the question I asked about, you know, women who have to go against the grain, if you like, and, and confront conventions of femininity in order to get on in football. I think some of the female players really have had to do that in football and and it shows and, and they have a consciousness about that as well. So uh, I think that that's a very interesting element to it. Yeah, absolutely. And it feels like homophobia, sexism are still really taboo things for like male players to be talking about at any level. I mean, we just had the first gay player come out just recently in the UK in a very long time, which is showing how little these things are talked about. Another thing which comes to my mind as well, which isn't talked about very much in terms of masculinity, is actually, you know, the, the governing bodies of football, like who has the power, who's actually got all the money, the resources, who's making the decisions, which are a lot of the time perpetuating a lot of inequality in football. Often again, that is men, you know, and they, uh, and so what kind of masculinities are they kind of constructing and performing? I think that's something really interesting, but isn't talked about very much much but I think you know it would be great to see more change and reflection coming from the top as well in football uh, if we're going to see the kind of change we want to to see and at at the sort of uh, stage of starting out in the game as well in education there's there's clearly a lot more that needs to be done there I mean I I was thinking of an example of of, you know a young woman locally who was a very good player but had to go miles and miles to actually you know become part of an adult club whereas for a, a young uh, man round here, well, they could go to the local club probably. It, it, you know, the, the pathways are very, very different for, for getting into football. And I think that's uh, not recognised as much as perhaps it should be. Yeah, so it shows the importance of investment at all levels of the game, I suppose, doesn't it? There was also an interesting documentary on at the weekend with Alex Scott here in the UK on the BBC. She was a, f- a former England women's player. And she was kind of making that point exactly that that's also why there's not as much diversity in the women's game you know like the England women's team is is very white for example and that's partly because you know the few training facilities which exist for young women and girls you know are, are only in a few select places are quite hard to access especially for for young women and girls in in more kind of um, disadvantaged areas so so there's clearly a lot of different issues there to to be addressed yep so much to do but um hopefully hopefully these euros coming up now will provide a bit of a boost. Absolutely. No, I'm really looking forward to to watching them and following them. But yeah, thank you so much, everybody, for listening uh, to this episode, as always. And uh, we'll be back again soon. Don't forget to subscribe if you're not already and listen back to our previous episodes. Do send us an email at nowmen at gmail.com if you've got any questions or feedback. And um, yeah, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Yep. Talk soon. Thanks. Take care. Bye.